Steve, Pastor Steve is not here and he's asked me to share this briefly with you. On Monday, April 5th, my mother experienced a sudden and acute decline. Her strength vanished in hours. She began to sleep long hours each day and lost most of her appetite. While we prepared for this possibility someday, it was so sudden we were left with lots of unanswered questions. As a result of that on Monday, um, his mother then went to be evaluated medically and they determined that there's nothing else that can be done. She's on her home stretch heading to her heavenly reward. And so Steve has asked that for Nancy, that we pray for her today and for the family. There are other family members flying in and they're moving into a hospice mode with Nancy right now. So let's open with prayer. Lord, we do commit the McCracken family to you and would ask that your special mercies and comfort would be with each one of them. We're so thankful for the presence of godly parents that raise us. And we know in this planet, on this earth, nothing is forever. And that your word says that it's in fact temporary. And so we would pray for each member of the McCracken family and for others in this congregation who have family members who are sick, who have questions and medical issues, that you give them the grace and give the medical personnel the wisdom to make the right decisions. And we commit each of them to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. We are in year three of our five-year saga through the book of James. And um, get going back here. And as is keeping with year three, we are in James chapter three today. How many of you brought your Bibles with you? Let me see them. I know you can hold up your iPad or your phone. But this is actually going to be a day when I advocate a little bit more for the old guard. Uh, but do bring something so you can follow along each week as we go through the scriptures. We're in James chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading from verse 13. James chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly unspiritual of the devil for where you have envy and selfish ambition there you find disorder in every evil practice but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure then peace loving considerate submissive full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness I tried to give you for today a bit of an outline on your bulletin insert, which lets you see that essentially we're talking about <coughs> two different questions today for the Christian church, two different themes. The first is, how do we deal with people in the church who act badly? 
toward us or others. Now, that in itself is a bit of a secret that we don't talk about. We don't talk about people in the church acting badly, but they do. They claim to be believers, and in fact, 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Let the Lord, the Lord knows those who are his, but even believers are prone to act very poorly. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, hits that squarely in our passage today. The second theme that we're going to talk about today is what do you do when you don't know your next step? What do you do when it's not clear to you about the life decisions you have to make? And the good news there is also that the scriptures help us out. By the way, we want to greet Cheryl today. This is her first time back in a year, and it's good to have Cheryl back with us. She's here in the front row, and she promised she's going to pay attention. In this last week alone, I've been involved in two different litigation settings. And in both those settings, I was reminded of what life boils down to for me. For me, it boils down to a lot of things related to either moral decisions or wisdom decisions. In other words, there are times you face things in life when it's just straightforward, black and white, linear, this is what you got to do. That's a moral decision. We won't talk about driving and speeding and all that sort of stuff, but essentially, it's following the law. But in my judgment, the larger issue in life are the wisdom issues, the ones that are not clear, the ones where you've got to go back to the Lord and say, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to evaluate this? And in those litigation settings in the last week that I've been in, there was more often than not times when we had to apply, even with the law, we had to imply, apply wisdom analyses to try to get through it. Now, the book of James for today is building off of an Old Testament theme. That theme is wisdom. There are three books in the Old Testament that we call our wisdom literature. You do get to move to the front row if you can tell me what they are, although my students never did move to the front row when I offered that. But what are the three books in the Old Testament that are wisdom literature? Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, that's two. And the love song, Song of Solomon. So wisdom is an Old Testament concept. It comes from the Hebrew word chachma, and it was used and built out of the derivatives in the Hebrew language that talked about craftsmanship, talked about skillful living, talked about wrapping a cord around a post. And so when you read the term wisdom, whether it's in the Old Testament or New, the Bible is saying to you, how are you going to apply skillful living in the situation that you're in? Now, the wisest of the Old Testament writers wrote, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, that attained wisdom and discipline for understanding words of insight. For acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, by giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, 
Let the, wise list, let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So as we build from the foundation and roots of the Old Testament, we see that James, the half-brother of Jesus, wants us to understand our Old Testament theology, and it is this. God, who created heaven and earth, rapidly moved within the fall in the garden to the promises to Adam, Abraham and his progeny, and all of mankind, all of men and women, both Jewish and Gentile, since Genesis 12, have built off of that promise to Abraham. First, certainly in the Old Testament, and the laws of the Old Testament, the 513 commands of the Pentateuch, and the rest of the prophetic instructions, and from that context have moved into the introduction, the promise, the prophecies which led to the coming of Jesus. Now, the law in the Old Testament was both bad news and good news. <laughs> it was bad news because it condemned us. It said, we're not going to make it because God doesn't grade on the curve. Unless we're perfect the way God is perfect, we're in trouble. But the good news is that the law pointed to Jesus. I remember being in my undergraduate studies at Portland State before the earth's crust hardened. And at that time, we had a religious professor, an unbeliever, who wove in the course of the discussions how the Old Testament led into the New Testament in ways that I did just now. And he said it pointed to Jesus, and Jesus came as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, and he died, and the record says he rose again, and from that the church sprang out. And while he was talking, my heart, as a collegian, was rejoicing. I thought, that's wonderful. That's the gospel music. That's the gospel message. He said... Doesn't mean a thing to me. That's the difference. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. For us, in moving to the book of James, we move from a context of Old Testament prophecies to New Testament fulfillment. James was written as the first of the New Testament books to be circulated after the death of Christ. Christ died on eight, August, excuse me, April the 3rd, 33 AD. And we have the earliest record of this book of James being in the hands of some of the Jewish churches by 34 AD, early. This became, as you read through the book of James, Christianity, Christianity 101. This became the first thing that God wanted the early church to wrap their lives around as they followed in the train of their Savior. And so in 34 AD and on, James 1 says, this was a given by James, the half-brother of Jesus, the servant of God to the 12 tribes scattered. Now, if you were to put historically the book of James into the New Testament, you'd find that um, it covers the first eight or nine chapters of the book of Acts. 
In other words, by the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 8, with that martyrdom, it blew out the early churches. They were informal. They were fairly uh, unorganized, but it blew them out. The early church we know was made up of believers who primarily constituted what career group in the first century? Starts with an S. You get to move to the front row if you know. Slaves, good. 70% of the Christian church were slaves in the first century. They had some of the Roman family that were converted. We had some rich Jews and Gentiles in the church, but for the most part, they were a motley crew. They'd be a crew that if you walked into the upper room in the first century, first of all, there were no pastors. There were elders, but there were no pastors. There was no paid clergy. But as you looked around, you'd say, this is not an impressive group. I don't know that I want to be part of this, particularly if I want to be a mover and shaker in my community. And that's exactly the problem the early church ran into. And it's the reason that they would take the rich folks and they move them up front. And they'd take the poor slaves and they'd push them in the back. And so we talked about that in James chapter 2 and how that favoritism indicted the very person of God. But James is a book that is a primer in life for us in so many ways. If I can take just a couple of minutes to summarize our first two years in the book. It's a book that starts out right out of the blocks with the word joy. Now, these are believers that have been through the dispersion, the martyrdom of Stephen. In many cases, they're running for their lives. They're meeting in secret. And someone comes in with a copy of this book and says, respond with joy. And they say, right. But that's what this book says. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, the first word in the original language is joy. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. So the book writes to believers who are running for their lives in some respects, though Acts chapter 9 and verse 31 says, there was after the martyrdom of Stephen a brief time of tranquility for the church. They were in distress. And James is written to address that distress for them and say to them, as you respond with joy, as something comes through the door and you didn't expect it, you didn't anticipate it, out of the blue, it throws you back. James says, first of all, respond with joy. Second of all, understand that that trial of many kinds provides for you a testing that will make you mature and complete. Do you remember the Greek word for testing from two years ago? Third chance for you to be in the first low. It's the word, starts with a D, dokimos. Dokimos was a word that as they made pottery in the first century and they got it semi-hardened in the kiln, if it came out the way they wanted, the craftsman would take them out, cool it, before it was completely cool, turn it over, stamp the word dokimos on it, put it back in and finish it off. It meant it's proven, it's tested. It's going to do what I designed for it to do. Do you see what's being said? 
This book says that the tests and trials that God puts you through as you respond in faith, by joy, by, with joy in faith, they are designed to grow you up and to grow me up. And so that opens the floodgates of this wonderful book. I've had a number of you say, I'm memorizing James chapter 1. And I think that's great. And every time I teach on the book of James, I want to say this, but I haven't cleared it through the leadership of the church, so I haven't said it. I didn't clear it today, but I'm still going to say it. You memorize James chapter 1, and you go to somebody and you quote James 1 to them, I'll get you a reward. Now, sometimes leaders say, well, John, you're not really supposed to be paying people to memorize the Bible. I am. So you memorize James chapter 1, and I'll work it out with you. It's that good. It really is that good, and some of you are doing that. But as we get into the tests in James chapter 1, the believers want to know a number of things that James asks and answers with seven questions in the book. If you've got your hard copy of your Bible with you, it's okay to write in the margin. There's nothing sacrilegious about that. The seven questions in the book of James that he will answer begin in chapter 2. First question, my brothers as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism to those around you. Suppose a man comes into your, into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes. How do you respond? That's question number one in the book of James. And we learned that in the book of James that we're not to apply favoritism in that situation, but we're to understand that under the grace of God, all men and women equally prosper with the mercies and grace of God. Question number two in the book of James comes in chapter 2 and verse 14. What good is it, my brother, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother and sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm, but does nothing, in the same way faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Martin Luther, bless his heart, now in heaven, wanted to pull the book of James out of the New Testament because of that language, but he misunderstood it. Because faith without works is dead, because it is works that justify our faith, not before God, but before men. It's the things that demonstrate that our faith is real to those around us. And if we want to prove that, we finish the book of chapter 2, and it says, consider Abraham, Abraham, who offered his son up on the altar in Genesis 22. Talk about faith working itself out and demonstrating itself to those around us. And then James hops from the leader of the Jewish faith to a Gentile prostitute. It must have given the self-righteous Jews a bit of a nervous tick for him to do that. But he went from Abraham to Rahab and said the end of chapter 2, in the same way, Rahab the prostitute considered herself righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them out in a different direction. So the question number two, are you staying with me because we're moving fast today? Question number two is, what does justification by works mean? It means you're demonstrating your faith to those around you. As Abraham did at the end of his life with Isaac, as Rahab did at the end of her faith when she hid the spies and took them out another way. Third question is our text today. 
And the question is, who's wise and understanding among you? Now, the context of our passage today is this four-ounce muscle in our mouth. It's our tongue. And, um, and it's a problem. James chapter 1 says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. In other words, you might do better by saying nothing rather than something. And in fact, that verse breaks open the rest of the book in some summary fashions. But even Proverbs and Solomon said, even fools are thought to be wise if they keep silent and discovery of, of, of their opinions are held by their tongue. In other words, Solomon said, just stay quiet and they'll never know you're a goof off, you're a fool. They'll never know that you don't understand. Well, that's not the whole story, but it's the start of the story in terms of the tongue. And the tongue in chapter, four, chapter 3, it says, is like a rudder of a ship. It's like a spark of a fire, and it can set a whole ship or a whole forest on fire. And it can. These tongues of ours can be nasty commodities. And I say that as somebody who makes a living with my tongue. And so it's kind of doubly applicable to me. But in that regard, in terms of how we monitor our tongue, James now says there are two kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom that is earthly, and there's a wisdom that is heavenly. And he addresses in that, first of all, the irregular people among us who act badly. The ones who he calls ones who have a wisdom which is earthly. And he says, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven. It's earthly, unspiritual. It's of the devil. Now, that's a bit of a pause. And this, this, these are the scriptures. These are God's words given through James. And I have a bit of a pause when I'm applying to the irregular behaviors around me, behavior of believers that, that James says may actually be of the devil. But I'm not going to be any stronger or any lighter than what the Bible says. And what it says is, if you see those who are unspiritual, who are envious, who have ambition that's selfish, that's earthly, and its source its root is evil. It is the devil. You say, well, John, this is a church. <laughs> this is a church made up of us who are still fallen people. We are fleshly. And as Romans 8 says, we do what we don't, we, we, we can't do at times what we want to do, and we do, do, we do say what we don't want to do. In other words, that conflict that comes between our fallen being and the spirit of God that's in us is a conflict that every believer has, and some believers fight it less than other believers. And so their conduct is evil. It is ambitious. It's a belief that I can get ahead in life by stepping on a few other heads, and it's not good. And we should know and be forewarned 
that if that happens with all the gentleness and humility that can come from the authority of the scriptures, we need to say to those saints, stop it. Don't do that. I've gotten bolder as I've gotten older in terms of saying some of these things to people. And so at times I will say to someone, I want you to weigh what you're saying and what you're doing in light of eternity. And at times that causes a person to step back and say, what am I gaining in this life if it's only this life? That's the earthly perspective that says at best it stays right here. It's not from heaven. It doesn't gain you anything in terms of heaven. But there's a second kind of wisdom in our text. It's the wisdom which is heavenly. And in verse 17, it says, The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive. Those three words, by the way, peace-loving, considerate, and submissive, all have the same Greek letter that starts those three words, and they form a trilogy, and they often show up like that all through the New Testament. It's a package. And God says, when you act in a peace-loving manner, you'll act considerately, and you'll act with submission. It was the message of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall become sons of God. I've often said that um, the message of James, if there's a summary phrase of chapter 2 about mercy triumphing over judgment, is that those of us who have as a goal to live in a life that is heavenly in terms of our wisdom, the scripture says they are submissive, full of mercy. If you want to be characterized by one thing, if you want to be known by one thing, it's that you're pure in your motives, and you're merciful in your behavior. And that's why James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. I've often said that there's one of two things that are going to be on my tombstone. It's either, I told you I was sick, (laughs) or it's going to be, and this is the one I vote for, mercy triumphs over judgment. So those of us who want to be known and want to be measured by things that please the Lord. We are peacemakers. We're merciful. We're pure. We have behavior that produces good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace and who raise a harvest of righteousness. The imagery here is the farmer, which is a favorite imagery of the Old and New Testament. The farmer who goes out and plants his seed And he plants the seed of mercy and good good motives and peace-lovingness. And the fruit that comes up out of that is a harvest of righteousness. That's what you want. I remember a weird thing I got into as a young man. It was proposed to me by a group that marketed pyramid kinds of things. John, what, what would happen if you had two barrels full of cash? And you reached into the barrels, and as much as you could hold in each paw, you pull those out, and you count that up, and whatever that total is, what would you want to buy? And I thought, that's kind of creepy. First of all, I don't want to be part of this business enterprise. But second of all, what are you saying? 
And I, I think what was being said was, where are your goals in life? And over time, I found out that what I want to reach into and pull out is a life of being a peacemaker, of being merciful, of being one who harvests a fruit of righteousness in the lives of those around me. It is again Solomon who says, how much better to get wisdom than gold, to get insight rather than silver. So if there's something we want to pull out of that barrel, it's going to be the gold and silver of wisdom. John Bunyan, in 1678, wrote a book, an analogy on the Christian life. What's the name of the book? You get to come to the front row. Pilgrim's Progress. You know, Jeff is the only one that's earning a front row seat here. <laughs> um, Pilgrim's Progress. You remember Christian who went from the city of destruction to the celestial city with a buddy? And about in the story, read it if you haven't read it. Read it to your kids. What happens uh, as Christian and his buddy are making the trek to the celestial city? What happens to them? They fall into the slew of, starts with a D, despond. Read the book. It's a great book, even though it was uh, 300 years ago, 350 years ago. They fall into the slew of despond. And Christian's buddy was able to struggle and get out. But Christian was stuck there. He couldn't get out. He was full of, as the text says, dirt and mud, and he was stuck. And then, out of that muddy hole, a man came named, starts with an H, help. And help represents the Holy Spirit in Pilgrim's Progress. And the Holy Spirit help pulls him free from that slew of despond and he gets back on his way. But Christian has a question for help, the Holy Spirit. He says, what's going on? Why does God have this bog that we can fall into? And help says, this miry slough is such a place as cannot be mended. In other words, you get it? It's part of life. The McCrackens didn't ask for mom to take a downturn on Monday. Others of you have things and challenges in your life. You don't have a clue why they happened. So what do you do? The answer is you act with mercy, with kindness, with peacemaking commitments and you wait for God to provide for you the solutions which are called heavenly wisdom. James actually had already addressed that when he said that there is with wisdom a time when Christians come up short. Do you remember that in James 1 verse 5? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who will do three things for you. This is great. This is life-changing stuff. If you lack wisdom, ask of God who will give you, who will do three things for you. First, he'll give to you generously. God is not a troll. 
that hides under a bridge, begrudgingly deciding whether he's going to give you mercies or not. He's not that. He's a generous, heavenly father benefactor who wants to give you all the information and resolution that you need to act properly and to be one who's characterized by wisdom, who gives generously, second thing, to all. Well, I don't deserve wisdom. <laughs> I kind of screwed my life up. I'm still living with the consequences of bad decisions. Well, aren't we all? We all are, by the way. James 3 says, prepare for this. We all stumble in many ways. Anybody in this room that didn't apply to? Nope. We all <laughs> stumble in many ways. We need to get off our high horse, Christians, if we think we're kind of riding at a different spiritual plateau than the general population. We all stumble in many ways. And yet the passage says in James 1, if any of you, no exceptions, if any of you lack wisdom, God will give it to you generously to all. That should be a great encouragement to you. He's not holding you hostage based on your failures. He wants more than even you want to live life in a successful spiritual manner with the challenges that you face. Go to him and ask him for the wisdom to do that. And the third thing that is said, if any of you lack wisdom, God will give it to you generously to all without reproach, without reservation. He is our Heavenly Father. And because we're grafted by grace into His kingdom through the work of Jesus, we are ones who are most privileged to have the resources of heaven available to us. Did you get that? The resources of heaven available to us. Solomon also said, in Proverbs 10.1, Know also that wisdom is like honey for you if you find it. It has at, with it a future hope, and your hope will not be cut off. So when you reach into the barrels of life, reach for wisdom. Because that's sweet honey in the affairs of men and women. And it gives you the kind of hope that gets you through the circumstances that you're in. That is absolutely encouraging stuff. So help was right when he said to Christian, a bog has to be there. It is something that is built into the warp and woof of life in a way that says, many things for me are not clear, but I've got a heavenly father who intercedes for me, who goes in front of me, and who creates the kind of circumstances and life situations and opportunities that let me be a man or a woman that's characterized by heavenly wisdom. I think there are three conclusions that come out of this kind of material. First is, we should, as Christians, be the most real, real, R-E-A-L, about life, we don't need to pump sunshine and pretend that we have no flaws when we do. We all stumble in many ways. 
We don't have to pretend that we're more righteous than someone else. We're not in and of ourselves. So if that's a hobby horse you're on, get off of it. Because we are just real people who say we're in the struggle, but the good news is we're on the heavenly side. You know what I realized in the course of Easter in this last couple of weeks? I'm really almost done, really, really. Uh, in Easter in this last couple of weeks, what I realized that as Michael gave the sermon on the two thieves, and I reflected on that, it was a great sermon. But as he gave a sermon on the two, theme, two, two thieves, do you remember the conversion language of the, thie- of, the, of the thief who ended up in paradise with Jesus? It's maybe the shortest confession of faith you'll ever see in the Bible. I'd never seen it before. It was, remember me. Isn't that sweet? That's all it took for that man to pass from death to life. For Jesus, for everything he was going through on the cross, to say, today you'll be with me in paradise. We should be the most real. That by the grace of God, we pass from death to life through Jesus. Second conclusion, we should be the most optimistic. This should get you excited. It really should. Because we have answers to the crucibles of life that other people don't. We're not going to go through that intersection and be broadsided and killed by chance. No way. Our days are numbered. I'm not even going to get into the mask thing. But our days are numbered such that, and apologize if there's any offense there. That's my own thing. But we are people that God goes in front of us. And our days are numbered. And as Spurgeon says, God's man is invincible until his life's work is done, and after that, there's no force on earth that can keep him here. We should be optimistic. Third, and with this I'm done, we should be the most grateful. We should absolutely be ones who say, I have an attitude of gratitude in life because of the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful today for your word and its direction. We're thankful that it speaks with candor to us about portions of our life that we don't want to admit, but then gives us resolutions and solutions to it. Pray again for the McCracken family. We pray that you will give them comfort and confidence that your hand is with them in these weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.